With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to episode 187 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. Today's a story about fishing and a pointless crime. And one that caused so much devastation for so many people right up until last month. But first, a huge thank you to all my supporters on Patreon especially this week's members of this exclusive club. That is Rachel Pusill, May Derup, Kate Bainham, Karen Hillier, Sheila Hanley, Jackie Anderson and Ron Coth, plus Nancy Perrin and Pam Kitchens have increased their support. Thank you all so much. It is much appreciated. Let's set some context for today's story by working out the month and the year. Here we go. In music, the top US and UK single was One Dance by Drake featuring Wizkid and Kyla. Must have missed that one. And a quality album was number one in the Australian album charts. It was Youth Authority by Good Charlotte. This month saw the Chilcot Report on the war in Iraq released. A report that I think it's fair to say wasn't rushed out prematurely. Andy Murray won his second Wimbledon title. Wild and crazy Theresa May became Prime Minister, and Chris Martin and Gwyneth Paltrow uncoupled. If you haven't checked out some of the, <laughs> if you haven't checked out some of these products released by Gwyneth's health brand Goop, please stop listening and do so right now. My favourite was the quote, "This smells like my vagina candle." Unquote. Surely a surefire hit for any granddad's birthday out there, and a steal at just seventy-five dollars. And in sad UK news, Caroline Nahern died of cancer at just 52. It was July 2016. No adverts today, so straight to the story. Scott Wilkinson had a pretty uneventful childhood in what was a pretty normal household with his mum, dad and brother Sean. Scott and Sean liked misbehaving when they were young, giggling away at silly jokes with their dad, and David would just laugh it off whilst their mum, Janet, would gently scold them like the childhood that many of us enjoyed, I guess. David enjoyed fishing, and it became almost a family hobby, intertwined with long summer holidays and trips to Ireland. There were just so many fishing stories in the family that would be retold year after year. And Scott in particular, he just loved to go fishing. As he got older, he kept this love of fishing. But sadly, as for most of us, that work thing meant he could spend less time doing what he really loved. Scott married twice and had four sons, but unfortunately, neither of the marriages lasted. Scott was considered a kind and friendly sort of guy, quick to help and give time to people. He had a wide range of friends and remained very close to his family, in particular his parents. He was always keen to try his hand at something, looking for projects. One time he went through a stage of trying to do up cars and making the family roar with laughter for weeks when he once fitted a new sunroof on a car and when it rained, the passenger got soaked with built-up water whenever he took a left turn. Sounds like the sort of thing I would do. Hello, Scott liked to go fishing with friends and family sometimes. I mean, he was teaching his sons the art of fishing, for example. 
He also liked to go on his own. When on his camping trips alone, Scott sometimes used to sell small amounts of cannabis to his fishing acquaintances. Unfortunately, as the years went on, Scott started to suffer from medical issues and an ankle injury from a job at a removals company meant that he was unable to continue in his job as a truck driver and so from here on in he had to survive on government benefits. But this did mean at least he had more free time to spend fishing. When we joined the story in 2016, Scott lived with his partner of four years Lisa Lane in Walton, not far from Sunbury Lock, to the southwest of London. You probably know it as that area of lakes you fly over when coming into Heathrow. Scott used to fish a lot at a small island in the Thames near here, known to locals as Donkey Island. It's a pretty place, described on Surrey Life's website as the perfect wilderness island where generations of Sunbury children have played swallows and Amazons. On Monday, July the 25th, Scott made his way to Donkey Island for a week-long fishing trip. Since finishing work, he often spent extended periods of time here with friends, family and his dedicated partner Lisa. They visited for company and bringing him supplies when needed. When Scott rocked up on this occasion, his usual spot of choice was occupied. But not one to be put out by this, Scott set up his camp and fishing equipment a little further along, a mere few metres, and once he set up, he began losing himself in what he loved doing the most, that's fishing. He said hello to the fellow campers, exchanging pleasantries, but otherwise, he just got on with his own business. An acquaintance of Scott who he'd met the previous fishing season in 2015 also noticed a couple of blue tents in Scott's usual spot and Scott shared a joke with him that there were people in his normal swim. Those fellow campers were two teenage brothers, 17-year-old Shane Crort, his younger brother, 16-year-old Lenny Crort, and their cousin, 21-year-old Charlie Smith. Unbeknown to Scott... Lenny was actually meant to be at the children's home where he lived in Blackpool. He'd walked out five days previously and made his way to West Mosley to see his family, but they decided he shouldn't hang around the family home as social workers would most likely be on their way to retrieve him. Shane too had been brought up in care, but having left the system once he reached 18, he was now back living with his parents. The care system were very concerned about how much influence Shane had over his brother Lenny, especially if they'd both already been convicted of assault. Their cousin Charlie had also come from a large family. Both he and Lenny had already fathered children, and Charlie had already collected convictions for possession of a knife, threatening to cause criminal damage, and he had received a 12-month prison sentence, suspended for two years, when he pleaded guilty to robbery in 2014. Friends and family knew him as a bit of a fantasist, making up wild stories and boasting of his part in them. In fairness, it had been a difficult start to life for Charlie, as he'd really struggled at school, and he was taking this forward into his adult life. Charlie hadn't seen his cousins for several years, but they invited him to go fishing, even though he hadn't ever been fishing before. The trio borrowed some camping and fishing gear, and headed out to Donkey Island. The boys soon became aware that Scott had cannabis, and so bought some from him. As for Scott, he loved the peaceful nature of Donkey Island and he grew increasingly annoyed with the mess the three younger men were making and even spoke to them about it. 
It was such a beautiful spot and Scott didn't want it abused. The next day, Tuesday the 26th of July, the three young men popped to the Crouts family house which was nearby to get some more food and clothes and other provisions and return back to the island. They immediately noticed that their fishing equipment wasn't there. They asked Scott if he knew where it was, to which he replied that he didn't know either. So not knowing what to do for the best, they went back to the Crouts house and told the Crouts dad, Jake Silver. He wasn't best pleased to say the very least, and he made it abundantly clear that he wanted his equipment found. Jake Silver himself decided to ride his motorbike to the island to figure out what the situation was. The group eventually found it in a nearby abandoned building. Meanwhile, Scott carried on fishing. The following day, his friend David Price visited. The pair spent some time chatting and fishing. The Crouts and Charlie Smith were back and came over to ask if either Scott or David had any spare tobacco, but both said that they didn't. Upon leaving the island, David agreed to return the next day with a new gas canister and to look after Scott's stuff whilst he attended his routine appointment at the job centre. Lisa, Scott's partner, also came to visit him in the evening, bringing them sandwiches and tea. Lisa, being a very social lady, made small talk with the young men next door, asking if they were local, what had brought them there, their ages, and she spoke briefly about Scott's four children. Scott and Lisa spent a pleasant evening together, and at 10.30pm or so, Lisa started to make moves to leave for the night, planning to go back to David Price's house to stay with him and his wife. Being the gentleman he was, Scott walked Lisa back towards the car park of the Weir Hotel at Sunbury Lock. They chatted away as she carried on walking on the towpath, with him on the island across the riverbank. As he always did, Scott said he would call Lisa in half an hour or so, just to check she made it home okay. At 11.18pm that evening, Residents living near the island heard frantic shouting from male voices, but after less than a minute the quiet resumed. They thought nothing of it. At 11.30pm Lisa waited for Scott to call, and when he didn't she tried calling him instead, but he still didn't answer. She told the prices, and they all casually agreed that he must have fallen asleep. The next day David arrived at Donkey Island with a replacement gas canister for Scott. Scott was not around, so David took a brief look around Scott's tent and saw what looked like blood on the outside of the tent. Upon further inspection, David found one of Scott's fishing rods and his bait box floating on the water immediately beside the tent. Obviously concerned for Scott's well-being, David searched a whole island but could not find Scott anywhere. This was totally out of character for his friend, so with his concern growing, David called the police. He also called Lisa, who arrived shortly afterwards, and searched around the tent, finding it strange that Scott's tent had squashed blackberries all over everything. The emergency services were soon on the scene, and they quickly found Scott's battered body in amongst foliage at the waterside, not far from his tent. Firefighters pulled him from the water's edge. Those blackberries that Lisa had seen were in fact horrifically splatters of Scott's brain. He'd been brutally attacked and murdered, but why and by whom? Scott had a pacemaker fitted and when the readings were checked, it showed that at 11.18pm the night before, 
Scott had had a sudden erratic heartbeat the same time that local residents had heard the commotion. The readings then showed that Scott lay dying for just over three hours before his body finally gave up on him. Let's just hope that he wasn't conscious for those long hours, waiting and praying for help. Scott's head was cut down to the bone in places and his skull had been smashed into fragments. Several of his ribs had been broken and his spleen ruptured. Pathologist Richard Chapman, who incidentally performed the autopsy on Princess Diana, found that Scott had sustained full thickness lacerations to his head, bruising to his head and upper body, internal injuries including two broken ribs, a tear in his spleen and a fractured skull that he compared to crazy paving. He concluded that the blows to Scott's head and body were likely to have been caused by someone hitting Scott with severe force and by a rod-like object. He found that Scott died of extensive brain damage and even if he had been found before he died, in his opinion, Scott would not have survived. He found his injuries to be similar to someone in a serious road traffic accident. Of course, suspicion immediately fell on the Quartz brothers and their cousin Charlie. CCTV captured them leaving the island at 11.22pm, just minutes after Scott's irregularity on his pacemaker was recorded. They stole a motorbike on the way home, taking parts that Jake Silver needed for his own motorbike and then burning the bike. On the 28th of July, police turned up at the Quartz house, not in connection with Scott's murder, but to see if Lenny Quartz was there. Police felt that when they were there, the whole family almost looked very tired and there were some mutterings about a late night. The police took Lenny Quartz to social services where he was then transported back to Blackpool to the children's home. Shane Crawford and Charlie Smith went to see Shane's girlfriend, Leah Cresswell, and her mate. They wandered about the estate with Shane Crawford boasting to the girls that he'd hit Scott over and over again with a plank of wood, knocking out his teeth and killing him, as well as showing the girls the torch motorbike they'd stolen. The girls thought that Shane was having them on, but Smith verified Crawford's story, telling them that he was there too, though he did not say that he'd be involved in the attack. CCTV captured Shane Crawford and Smith with friends trying to return to the island on the 29th of July, but finding it already cordoned off by the police, they swiftly left. Shane Crawford returned home and told his parents about what had happened on that terrible night on Donkey Island. Over the next week, a total of six people were arrested in connection with Scott's death, including the Crawford brothers and their cousin Charlie. What followed these arrests were several stories and lies including false alibis with, as we've heard so often on this podcast, the three turning on each other. Police had a few theories about what had happened that night. Perhaps the three had taken revenge on Scott for possibly hiding their dad's fishing gear. Perhaps they tried to purchase some more cannabis from Scott and he had refused. Maybe they did it purely to rob Scott of anything he had or there was the possibility that there was no motive. They just attacked and murdered him for fun. Each gave prepared statements assisted by their legal reps, all denying they'd anything to do with Scott's death and refusing to answer any further questions by using those words, no comment. Smith's statement said that he visited the Court Brothers on Donkey Island, had indeed met Scott there, describing him as a really nice guy. He explained that some Irish travellers had come onto the island and given Scott a hard time, so he left the island the day before the murder. 
Smith's alibi was that he was with his sister and her boyfriend, which they corroborated. The courts, unsurprisingly, also maintained that they were not on the island on the night of the murder. The three young men were released, and a week later, Smith's sister's boyfriend went to police and said he'd been confused about when Smith had stayed there, and actually, he had not been there on the night of the murder. Police believed that the couple had not in fact lied, they just got confused about the dates. And according to the boyfriend, when the three men were released, Smith actually bragged to a stranger about getting away with it. Despite all the evidence against them, police didn't think they had enough to charge them with murder. But what we do see once again is what we see a lot on this podcast, an inability, an absolute inability to keep quiet about their crime. It transpired that the men had sworn at some people outside a pub at the night of the murder and told them they'd killed someone. Lenny Crort also half-confessed at his children's home, telling his key worker that Shane Crort liked going to the gym and he would not have access to that in prison. When the key worker probed, Lenny said that Shane had murdered someone, saying the words, we did do it. The key worker just thought he was joking and scorned him for making up such tales to which Lenny changed his mind and retracted his half-confession. A 10k reward was offered by Crime Stoppers in July 2017 for information about the unsolved murder, with Surrey Police asking for information again towards the end of July. Meanwhile, Smith then went on to tell an old school friend that he'd murdered someone, and this person recorded the conversation and took it to the police, hoping to make a bargaining deal to get himself let off the burglary charge that he and Shane Court were facing. What's that expression? No honour amongst thieves? How many times on this podcast do we see it? People are quite happy to sell their mates down the river. Police finally felt they had enough evidence against the three, and on July the 17th, 2018, nearly two years after Scott was murdered, the three were rearrested. Again, with assistance from their solicitors, they gave the same statements and answered no comment to every question. However, this time, the police proceeded to charge all three with murder on the 18th of July 2018. They were remanded in custody. Whilst in custody, Shane Crort had a few conversations with his mum which were recorded. The Crort's mum said she had spoken to Charlie Smith's mum who said he was being bullied in prison. Shane, what, is he getting beaten up left, right and centre? Mum, yeah, and Hilda keeps sending money, money, money up there. He needs to stand up for himself. Shane, yeah, of course he does. I bet when he gets to the canteen, that's when he's getting it all taken off him. And on the next call, mum, Charlie only just got hold of his mum today. That was the first time he called. Shane, oh well, fuck him. I don't give a shit about Charlie. Mother, no? Shane, it's Lenny I'm worried about. Mum, yeah, oh god, yeah. Shane, I'll do my best to get Lenny out, Mum. Don't worry about that. I don't care, as long as he gets out. All three pleaded not guilty to the charges at their trial. Lenny Crort did not say a single word at the trial. His lawyer claimed he did not have a case to answer, as both he and Shane Crort said he wasn't a witness to the crime. Charlie Smith and Shane Crort gave entirely differing accounts of what had happened whilst on the island and it was heard in the court that all three had confessed to being involved in the murder to friends, family, acquaintances and strangers in some way or other. Smith was first up 
agitated and wriggly in the dock. He claimed that he'd been on and off the island at points, that the Crawford brothers began terrorising him. I knew they were joking around, but it got annoying. He said so once again he left the island, having spent part of the day already at home. He spent the night at home, but did return the following day, the day of the murder. Early that evening, they went to the Crawford's for something to eat, and Smith observed that the Crawford brothers spent time whispering with their dad out of his earshot. They returned to the island, and Shane Crawford suggested buying some more cannabis from Scott to help with their sleep. Smith said he was then standing beside Scott outside Scott's tent, and out of nowhere, Shane Crawford swung a lump of wood into Scott's head. I'd never seen anything like it. He kept smashing his head. No one deserves to die like that. It was crazy. It was disgusting. Shane used both hands like he was playing baseball. He started laughing. Him and Lenny were laughing at each other. He just kept smacking him and smacking him and smacking him. I didn't think he was like that. He's my cousin. When asked if he'd assaulted Scott in any way, Smith replied, No, I didn't touch him. I was standing there. I was scared for my life. I didn't know what to do. I just stepped back. I didn't know if they would turn against me. It was scary seeing someone die like that. I hold my hands up. I was there that night, but I didn't have nothing to do with the death of Scott Wilkinson. Smith then said that Shane Crawford was encouraging Lenny Crawford to join in, so Lenny then cut Scott's face with a kitchen knife. Smith said he tried to call the police, but put his phone away when he saw Shane Crawford looking at him. And there are phone records to say that Smith did indeed try to contact police that night. Smith said that the three then left the island and he didn't tell the police what had happened because he was scared that he didn't want to grasp on his cousins. He also said the court's dad kept an eye on him, visiting him at his mum's house and at one point he claimed he was attacked by two men who jumped out of a transit van, breaking his legs and it being a warning from the courts to keep quiet. Shane Court's barrister said that actually when the paramedics arrived after that incident, they found Smith laughing and joking, saying his injuries had been caused by parkour jumping off the first floor balcony of the house. Asked again if he had joined in the assault, he responded, Never, never. I was there. I witnessed the attack. They killed him in cold blood murder. It wasn't self-defence or nothing like that. They should own up for what they've done instead of making us go through this shit. Smith's barrister then went on to say that Shane Court was big and powerful looking, sure of himself whereas Smith was, and I quote, a bit weedy, a bit skinny, all mouth and no trousers. In modern parlance, you might call him a pussy. Shane Court had a different version of events. Following the purchase of cannabis the previous night, Scott approached the three boys the night of the murder and demanded payment. Shane Court said he seemed moody. When Shane Court told Scott it would have to be the next day for payment, Scott returned to where his camp was and Shane Court followed him. When they were there, Scott got angry and pushed Shane Court to the ground. He said, I was scared, so I got up and punched him. Then after I punched him, he punched me back, and I pushed him. He stumbled back and picked something up. I saw once he started waving it around, it was a knife. I stepped back to get out of the way, then out of nowhere, Charlie came. Charlie hit Scott in the arm with something and hit him again. Shane Crawford said that Smith kept hitting Scott and so he ran off to tell his brother Lenny Crawford that they had to leave the island straight away. Smith's barrister reminded Shane Crawford of his phone calls with his mum 
and suggested that Shane Court was making sure that his version of events not only excluded himself, but definitely kept his brother Lenny away from any blame. The prosecutor said he found it odd that Shane would run off and leave Smith and Scott fighting, especially with Scott supposedly having a knife, and why he would not have tried to help his cousin. Shane's only response was that he thought his cousin would follow. When asked why Shane Court did not do anything when Smith allegedly told him he killed Scott, Shane answered that he just thought Smith was being a drama queen. All the barristers for the three young men talked in mitigation about their troubled upbringings, their youth, Smith's immaturity, and Lenny Court's toxic influence from his older brother. Of course, all three were found guilty after two days' deliberation. Smith guilty of manslaughter, and the Courts guilty of murder. Charlie Smith just said thank you, and the other two said nothing. In sentencing, the judge decided that all three had physically taken part in the attack, and therefore all three were responsible for Scott's death. He said, Scott Wilkinson was placed into the Thames and left to die alone. This was not a senseless, motiveless crime. There were intimations that a robbery had been planned, or he was to be taught a lesson, as he had removed and hidden your fishing gear. The courts were both given at least 15 years in prison, and Smith, 13. Lisa Lane told a newspaper after the trial, Even two years on, it's hard to talk about it. It feels like just yesterday that I went to look for him. I never stopped blaming myself or hating those boys for what they did to my Scott. It was a mindless act of violence, and has left his family and I utterly heartbroken. Lisa said that the killing was all just a game to them. I went to the trial and felt like killing those boys myself, as they smirked and smiled throughout the whole thing. There was a point when the judge asked them to take things seriously, as they were just showing absolutely no remorse. It was disgusting. It's like a nightmare that I can never wake up from. I see those boys' faces in my head 24-7. Scott's family said this after the trial. We exist, we function, we go through life in a robotic state, hurting deep within our soul, crying inside, and yearning for some solace which never comes. We will never recover, we will never find peace in a world about Scott. Scott was not perfect, he had his faults as we all do, but he belonged to us, and should not have been taken away. And to conclude the story, it was just a few weeks ago that the news came through that Lenny Crort had been found dead in his cell, at Aylesbury Young Offenders Institution, early in the morning of the 16th of May 2020. There were no apparent suspicious circumstances surrounding his death. Lenny was just 19 years old. So what do you make of what we've heard today? It's a shocking story, isn't it? Scott, doing no harm, just happened to be next to these three young men. What really happened that evening? We'll never know for certain. But I don't know about you, but my view is I agree with the judge. I think all three are equally responsible. Do we feel any sympathy for them because of their upbringings and their troubled early life? To an extent, yes. And of course our sympathy goes out to Lenny, dead at just 19, in those horrendous places, young offenders institutions. And he was a father, as was his cousin. Of course our real sympathies lie with Scott's partner, his family and his four children. And to see those three men laughing and smirking during the court case, can you imagine just how hurtful and upsetting that must be? And Scott, such a gentle, likeable man, 
Just killed for nothing. Killed for no reason. What an utterly terrible waste of a life. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. So I was a little bit late. Life got in the way. To discuss this story, please go to the Facebook group. There's 37,000, of us now to talk about this story and any other aspect of UK true crime. And to support the show, please head to patreon.com slash UK true crime. You'll find 43 full-length bonus episodes. There's the opportunity to watch me record a live podcast. You see all the stats, you get all the updates, get tickets for live shows. Please come and join me. Help keep the lights on for the show. Keep me recording a podcast every week. So there, that's it for me for today and for this week. So until we speak again next week, do take it easy. Please, 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 despite all the others, all the hassle involved, do stay classy. Until next week, cheerio. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, full work limited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.